Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show we review a serious amount of TV and movies. From Nicolas Cage and the unbearable weight of massive talent to Virgin Media's new cop show Redemption. As well as a new award-winning French movie The Happening to lots of things on Netflix and Disney+. I've watched a serious amount of stuff this week and I'll be telling you all about it. Plus, astronaut-in-waiting Neve Shaw chats about her favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well and you had a pleasant Easter. I was at the zoo for the first time since the madness came to town and uh, it was lovely. It was a lovely sunny day, Easter Saturday. It was just lovely. The zoo seems to have been, I don't know, It's it was like it had been hoovered. It was so clean. It was so well-maintained. Not that it wasn't in the past, but it just looked shiny and new. All the animals were out as well. Like, you know, some days you go to zoos and there's just, they seem to be hiding. It's like everyone was out, you know, from giraffes to, you know, pelicans. Uh, maybe they knew I was coming. That could have been it as well. Big fans of the show. But uh, I'm on no retainer from Dublin Zoo, but it was a, it was a very nice visit. Anyway, I, I, to, to use a TV analogy, as Tony Soprano once said, you know, sometimes it's nice to go out and smell the gorilla shit. And I wholly concur. Now, in TV, uh, we begin with a grim watch. Ladies and gentlemen, it so happens I've spent my life fixing things for people. As a child, you just thought this guy can make things happen. He knew everybody. Can I thank you for everything you do, for every good cause. How on earth do you raise ten million pounds in three years? With Jim, you accepted things as normal, but it was abnormal. That is supposed to be me. What did I ever do to you that you would draw that picture of me? He's very intuitive. You do a terrific job, Jimmy. No, that's all front. That's all lies. <laughs> he was making the screen in front of him. It's like you couldn't see through it. He knew fame and power gave him every door. I am a voluntary helper. Sometimes, when nobody's looking, I help the lasses. It turns out everywhere he'd been, there'd been abuse. I just want to see if they can catch me out, ladies and gentlemen. But they can't really catch me out. I've got eyes all over the head, you see. Yes, now, of course, that is Jimmy Savile, a British horror story, which has been on Netflix for a couple of weeks. I'm only getting to it now, and I'm only getting to it now because I didn't really want to watch it for very obvious reasons, I suppose. Now, I know you'll say, well, it's your job. Isn't that what you're paid to do? And yes, it is. So I did get to it. But another reason why I didn't want to watch it was I was kind of of the opinion that I knew all of this stuff. Uh, I've seen other documentaries about it. I've read a good bit about it. I'm a big Louis Theroux fan, and I saw the various things he had done with Jimmy Savile with his documentary and and afterwards his thoughts on it. So I thought I knew all about it. In case you don't know, this is on Netflix. It's a two-parter. And I, I, you know, enjoy is the wrong word about a documentary that's about a horrific predatory pedophile. But it was a very interesting watch uh, because what this had 
was tremendous footage and some things I never knew before. Like, for instance, that Margaret Thatcher was a real supporter and fan of Jimmy Savile, uh, to the point that she was, you know, canvassing for him to get an OBE. He was also, talking of royalty and OBEs, he was pretty tight with Prince Charles, to the point that Prince Charles seemed to view him as almost like a conciliary or a, you know, Rasputin-like advisor and was writing him letters regularly about his advice on things. And they had all this footage, like hats off to the makers of the documentary because they really trolled the archives and they had some scary footage about, I suppose, in a way how at times Jimmy Savile was knowingly winking at the world. And and it's called a British horror story. And the horror of this is how, aside from the horrific grooming of children that he engaged in, and that's a well-known story at this stage, but in a way how he groomed the nation or he groomed the media uh, and you see footage of him on all sorts of shows from top of the pops to being being interviewed by selena scott and he is charming people yet also being pretty rotten at times and you're just left with this horrible feeling of how come people didn't realize was this not obvious so in a way this documentary it's a bit like one of those roller coasters that keeps going up and up and up until you have this horrific fall Uh, and a big part of the documentary is him being on TV as I say and and being in British public life and getting away with it for so long Uh, so the documentary makers they've done a great job compiling this narrative and compiling it in a way that makes the drop for want of a better phrase, all that more tumultuous. So as I say, I don't want to say it's a great watch or anything like that because the subject matter is is too horrific, but it is a intriguing and very interesting and compelling watch. And you might think you know the Jimmy Savile story, but this certainly put a slightly different spin on it for me and just how gullible the British media and establishment seemed to be for so long when it came to Jimmy Savile. So that's currently on Netflix, Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story. Then I also want to quickly mention on Virgin Media this week, Redemption, which is all about a Liverpoolian-based detective called Colette Cunningham, who returns to Dublin to uncover the truth when she learns of the death of her estranged daughter. Uh, She's just working a case in Liverpool, and then she gets this call, and her life devolves somewhat. And she moves to Dublin and starts to work there and attempt to figure out what's happened to her poor daughter. Now, I've only watched one episode, but it was it was good so far. What I really like about it is sometimes Irish makers of TV shows tend to either make Dublin this terribly grimy place or this terribly shiny place, whereas the, the setting in Dublin seemed quite normal to me. I know that's strange thing to say surely there should be more going on but it's one of my pet peeves when they make Dublin not like Dublin it, it kind of gets on my wick for various reasons I don't know why but outside of how Dublin looked I thought this was pretty good and I'm looking forward to seeing the second one and Mo Dumford showed up briefly at the end of the first episode I don't think he actually said anything but uh, I'm always happy to see Mo Dumford in anything even when he's not even speaking so that's Redemption on Monday nights on Virgin Media One. I'm looking forward to the next one. We're going to be talking about the new Nicolas Cage movie, which is the big new release 
of the week. But another release this week is a French movie called The Happening. Uh, this had won awards last year. It won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. It was BAFTA nominated. It's from the French director Audrey Diwan. And it's about a young girl in 1963, France, who seems to have the world at her feet, a very promising future in college. And she becomes pregnant. And the story is about what's she going to do with the pregnancy because she clearly doesn't want it. And this movie, I suppose some people would call it controversial. It's a study of abortion in... France in the 60s of backstreet abortion. But what I found intriguing about the movie, I have to say, is that I think it could be viewed as a pro-life or a pro-choice movie. It was it was quite intriguing. I don't want to say much more than that, but you're left at the end just seeing a woman in a situation who makes a choice, and yet you're not really sure at the end of it what that choice amounts to for her or what the filmmaker may be saying about that so I, I found it a deeply intriguing movie it's it's very heavy but it's a great watch uh, and it's in cinemas this Friday it's called The Happening and it's in cinemas as I say selected cinemas from April 22nd now something else I re-watched this week see I told you I watched a lot of stuff this week I don't know what it was but you know isn't it good I did take a listen to this Look, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. Do you remember your first meeting with Rodman? That was awful. I walk into Jerry Cross's house. He's sitting on the couch. He's got a pool boy hat over his eyes. He's got the rings in his nose and his mouth. And he doesn't stand up to meet me. So I said, stand up, Dennis. Take your hat off, shake hands. Let's go outside and talk. We had to break bread then at the house. So basically he said, Dennis, you want to come play for the Bulls? I said, I don't care. Whatever. What's up? Dennis says, I need a vacation. And... I look at Phil and say, Phil, what do you mean? Vacation. He says, he needs a vacation. He needs some time off. We look at Dennis and say, Dennis, what, what are you going to do? He says, well, I need to go to Vegas. Can your vacation be like 48 hours? Go straight to the airport. Boom. They don't hear and see Dennis for 48 hours. I went to the Vegas. Sit <laughs> Dennis, come back on time. Mm-mm. He didn't come back on time. We had to go get his ass out of bed. And I'm not going to say what's in his bed and where he was and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Now that is a clip from The Last Dance, which is also on Netflix, which came out two years ago. And I spoke to you probably about it two years ago. In fact, I'm sure I did. But I'm re-mentioning it because I was doing my regular bit on Pat Kenny this week called Boxed, where we re-look at some TV that you might want to stream or watch or revisit or whatever. And we were doing The Last Dance, which in case you don't know, I will quickly tell you or slash remind you, is the story of the Chicago Bulls, particularly in the season 97 to 98 with the great Michael Jordan, when they were going for their sixth NBA championship in eight years. It is one of the best sports documentaries I've ever seen. I made the point to Pat during the week that like a great sports book, you don't have to have any interest in the sport in question to find it entertaining, which is completely the case with The Last Dance, because 
my knowledge and interest in basketball is minimal at best, yet The Last Dance is one of the greatest documentaries ever made about sport or about anything, really. And you have a film crew who were commissioned in 97, 98 to follow the Chicago Bulls for the season that they're in. And it is just brilliant TV. It really is. And not just because of Michael Jordan, there's a whole host of fascinating characters there. You have Dennis Rodman, this famous, somewhat eccentric, incredibly eccentric basketball player who would eventually go off to North Korea and all sorts of strange things. The coach at the time, Phil Jackson, was this guy who who just looked and sounded like an accountant. No disrespect to any accountants listening, but yet he had this he caused this devotion among the Chicago Bulls. There's all sorts of people and it. it's 10 parts. And honestly, every one of them is amazing because it also tells the story of Michael Jordan, who could be a jackass and by his own admission was kind of a bully to other players as well. And he had his own problems with gambling and he left basketball and decided to become a baseball player for a while. It is a brilliant, brilliant story. Brilliantly told. It's called The Last Dance. It's on Netflix. If you haven't watched it, you really should do yourself a favor. And finally, yes, finally, last week or may, no, it was the week before I was talking to you about a great show on Disney Plus called Single Drunk Female, where a girl comes back from New York, realizes she has a drink problem, moves in with her mother and tries to get sober. It's on Disney Plus. I told you it was funny. It was heartwarming. It was sincere. I'd watched five episodes over Easter. I watched all 10. So I can tell you it got even better as you went along. So you should definitely check out Single Drunk Female, now streaming on Disney+. And then finally, 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 I promise it's finally, I just want to tell you about a new movie that's coming that I'm very excited about called George Michael Freedom Uncut. And it's being billed as George Michael's last work because he was actually involved in it. It's a documentary about his life and career, and particularly about his life from when Faith became a monster hit up until he kind of reinvented himself in the early 90s with freedom and went through a serious change, both professionally and also in his private life. He kind of came out to, if not the world, to people around him and inhabited his own sexuality more. And there's all sorts of people involved, but including George Michael, who's credited as a co-director on it. So this is proper George Michael infused documentary and it's coming on the 22nd of June. I just got word of it this week and I'm very, very excited about it because George Michael was one of the greatest pop stars ever and it's such a shame he's not around anymore. So that's George Michael, Freedom Uncut, coming soon to Screens Near Us. Now I've been doing a lot of talking so I better let Mark Ryle in after the break. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show, and I am John Fardy. Now, before the break, we were talking about The Happening, a small-ish movie that's released, but it's a very good movie. But the big new release of the week is a very unusual Nicolas Cage movie. That's right, Nicolas Cage is back. Not that he ever really went away. In a new movie called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And with a title like that, there's an obvious segue into Mark Ryle. Hello, sir. How are you? Hey, John. <laughs> so listen, uh, Nicolas Cage, we, we did that 
Eamon Dunphy, John Giles thing where we texted each other during it because there was one bit where I was howling, laughing. Uh, tell yeah. listeners what this is about. Yeah, it's, there's nothing unusual of having a, an unusual Nick Cave, uh, Nick Cage movie. Most of Nick Cage's movies are pretty unusual. That's true. It is. It is. This one uh, is directed and co-written by a guy called Tom uh, Gork, Gorm. Gormican, who I'm unfamiliar with, and basically, yeah, Nicholas Cage plays the 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 part that he was born to play, which is Nicholas Cage. <laughs> he um, <laughs> uh, in the unbearable weight of massive talent, uh, Cage plays a heightened version of himself that that milks some of the perceived conventions that have kind of built up around him over the course of the last few, I suppose, decades at this stage. And um, those those ideas, those conventions about him would be that he's a very kind of overwrought actor, a little he, unhinged at times. He takes his art very seriously. Yeah. Um, he's also, he's not the A-list actor he was. He does too many movies um, and he's bad with money. Yeah. Um, now, all of these things, <laughs> where this is a fictional character, but uh, like Nick, Nick Cage is known for all of those things and more. Um, anyway, Fictional Nick has a he's got a teenage daughter and an ex-wife who's played by Sharon Horgan in this. And they are just flat out ex- exasperated with with his shtick. They've had years of it and they've had enough. And um, he has also built up um, massive debts and with uh, no no new movies or work on the horizon. His agent presents him with an offer to attend a superfan's birthday party in Mallorca for a few days in return for a cool $1 million. Mm. So off he goes um, where uh, he and the super fan who's played by Pedro Pascal, they bond over movies and they decide to write a screenplay together. But Pedro Pascal may also be the head of an organized crime cartel that has just kidnapped the president of Catalonia's daughter. Yes, indeed. Now, and not to split hairs, but just so people are clear, you say the fictional version of Nicolas Cage. He is playing Nick Cage to, or Nicolas Cage to all intents and purposes. I know it's a fiction movie. It's not a documentary or anything, but he is being no. Nick Cage. He's, he's playing himself. Yeah, and especially uh, as people imagine he is. He, yeah, exactly, and he's playing up to these, 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 you know, these, these stereotypes that have been uh, have been built up yeah. uh, so, through, through, through some fault of his own, it has to be said. Absolutely, absolutely. Buying dinosaurs uh, and all sorts of things. Exactly. He's not good with money. <laughs> he, must, he must have one hell of a man cave. Um, the actors playing themselves, uh, you know, or a version of themselves has been done at the top. At the top level, you've got something like John Malkovich in Being mm. John Malkovich. Mm. And then at the other end, you have got straight to video stuff with Bruce Campbell and David Hasselhoff. Um, I think the unbearable weight of massive talent falls. It's it's somewhere in the middle, but it's definitely at the top end. Um, it could have been it, I could have done with a bit more uh, Charlie Kaufman. Um, but having said that, most of this is is really, really, really funny. And it made me laugh a lot. So from that perspective, I think it's success. Well, I'm delighted. Um, I'm delighted. So, oh, perhaps yeah. I could speak for a moment. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm delighted to hear you say that. Now you may continue. Yeah. No. I do, overall, I do think it works. It it is. It's stupid, but it's good stupid. And you know, good stupid is really funny. Mm. Um, as I said, I think it could have pushed the envelope even a bit more and gone a bit more surreal and unhinged. I wouldn't have had a problem with that at all. But I mean, most of it works. 
Yeah. What did you think? Well, yeah, no, I, I, I should say I, I saw this as well, if that wasn't obvious. I really liked it, uh, and it made me howl a couple of times, which doesn't happen that often. Yeah. I was really found it very funny. There's one particular scene, the one I texted you about was where he sends a text message. You're just going to have to watch the movie to know what I'm talking about. But man, I, I was howling laughing. You mentioned being John Malkovich, and here's what I really like about yeah. it, because those movies were people play themselves what happens is it's dreamt up somewhere and they have an idea for it and people forget to write a script whereas in being John Malkovich they didn't there was a great script and there was a proper decent story here with good jokes that kept you going so it wasn't just let's get Nick Cage to play a fictionalised version of himself mm. dot 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 they actually wrote in the dot 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 and a pretty decent script as well I agree with you I could have done with it being possibly more off the wall but I yeah. did really enjoy it and I really laughed and I really thought hats off to Nick Cage are we allowed yeah. to call him Nick? I guess we are. To the way he sends himself up so thoroughly. And I know you can say a movie like this, yeah, well, he's having the last laugh, but it takes a certain amount of balls, for yeah. want of a better phrase, it's, to send himself up so does. much. Yeah, yeah. And I also, I'll let you back in now in a second, yeah, yeah. but I also really like Pedro Pascal as yeah. his ultimate fan who just seemed to want to hug him all day long. And I thought Sharon Horgan, she wasn't in a huge amount, but she was great. She is. She's really good. Yeah, I could have. I could have done a lot more of uh, him and Pedro Pascal talking about shoes. That was just really good. Hilarious. There, and there's a couple there, of moments that yeah. where they're talking about movies as well. And I won't spoil it. Yeah, but yeah. Their favorite no, movies a, come it's up. A, yeah, it's a burgeoning bromance. Yeah. You know? And uh, it's just it. It a lot of it is just two guys who love movies talking about movies, and. Yeah, as it turns out, Paddington 2 is the best movie ever made, which is it's hard to argue with. You know? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think like, that might be a spoiler, like but anyway. Kept, ah, no, it's not a spoiler. No, no. and I like the way that the daughter kept on mis, misnaming uh, the, the island of Dr. Calamari. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, yeah, there's a brilliant there's a brilliant scene where they're both on LSD trip, and um, yeah, we have to talk about the the cage versus cage scenes. Yes, he's, he's, where he's talking to his I suppose his, his internal id. Yeah, and, his younger uh, self, a, who was so yeah, full of see, hope and ambition. Yeah, well, he's, he's full of something. It's uh, but it, basically what it is, it's a it's a, a CG cage from I suppose circa Wild at Heart around yeah. that time, and um, yeah, he's just unhinged. But you get. You get two cages for the price of one. I, normally, the de-aging stuff, it never works for me, but this does because it is supposed to be weird and yeah. it's also very, very funny. Yeah, that's a good point. And I also, there was great music in it. You never hear Warren Zevon on soundtracks and you hear him on this and it was used It was used to great effect. It's also quite sweet as well and as a portrait of a supposed you know, artist who takes themselves too seriously, whose career isn't going the way he wants it to go. I thought that was all handled yeah. well. Like, there's a heart to it as well. There, there is. I mean, it did take a lot of guts to sign up for something like this. So, yeah. you know, hats off to, to Nick Cage. Um, I have to talk about some of the bits that, that weren't quite so successful. Okay. I, I say it, it, it works and mostly works. And the, the stuff that didn't sit well was the the CIA business. Um he's he's I suppose I should explain he's he's roped in by these two CIA CIA agents to to sort of uh track down this the the president's daughter and I don't think that was set up properly or ex explained away in any kind of credible manner. 
and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all. There are things in this movie that don't make sense in a really good way. Yeah. <laughs> and things that don't make sense in a not not good way. And the CIA stuff is the latter. And I think where this went off the rails for me was when it gets bogged down in trying to stick to that story. And amongst other things, uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent is also trying to be a sort of a, a lethal weapon or a Beverly Hills cop action thriller. And I think when it takes that stuff seriously and tries to be an action thriller, it really does fall flat and it loses a, a lot of its charm. Um, both that element of the story and the execution of the action scenes, they feel very straight to video and it takes away from all of the good stuff. Mm. Um, and I think I think that has probably been put there to make this appear more commercial, but I just don't think it was necessary at all. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Even though I do like Beverly Hills Cop and Lethal Weapon, but I guess trying to blend yeah, them with a... With they're great movies. Yeah. No, no, I know, I know, yeah. No, I know what you're they saying. They do it really well. They were trying to ride yeah. too many horses in, in that way. Uh, but yeah. that said, I, I was surprised by how much I liked this and, and how much I laughed because when I heard about it, a, a part of me shuddered, you know, and just thought, you know, no. this is this is going to be terrible. Yeah. So I think I liked it so much because I was there was such a surprise, you know. Yeah, there is that element of surprise. It is really, really, really funny. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. It's well worth seeing. He hasn't done comedy in a long time. He does an awful lot of voiceover stuff yeah. in, in animated movies, but he hasn't done an out-and-out -out comedy in in years. Maybe you have to go back to, I think, Matchstick Men or The Weatherman 20-odd years ago. Yeah. I mean, he's done plenty of movies that have been unintentionally hilarious. Yeah, um, I know, I know. But, yeah. but this was genuinely hilarious at times. Also, just his his, he did very well kind of you know, when things weren't going his way and he was just, oh, I can't believe my bad luck. He wore that hat very well, I thought. It was very, it was very appealing. Oh, I th tell you where Nic Nicolas Cage excels. No matter what is written down on the page, when it comes out of his mouth, it always goes off in a direction that you weren't expecting. Yeah. I have to say, you know, I've, I've like you, I've, a lot of the stuff he's done, I've just scratched my head and thought was awful. I've loved some stuff like Raising yeah. Arizona and I really like Leaving Las Vegas. It's a long time since I saw it. But I, I have a newfound, you know, respect, I guess, for him. I really, I really think hats off for doing this. He's done a couple. I mean, he does. He works a lot. I think. Yeah. He, I think over the last couple of years, he's averaging something like five movies a year. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. I mean, he has had some really good movies lately. Pig from last year was was brilliant, and uh, Mandy from a couple of years back is just it's a it's a classic. Mandy, so that's right. There is Mandy some was really, a very good movie, actually. Yeah. Mandy was just unbelievable. Um, yeah. so I guess is, it's like that is, Zach Galifianakis thing. Do you ever think you should make less movies? <laughs> Sorry, you were well, going to say. That's the thing. No, I mean, that's that, that's it in a nutshell, you know. Yeah. So, look, what are you going to say stars-wise? Um, this is going to sound a bit mean, but I'm going to give it a three and a half. I, mm. think, I think three and a half is a fair score for this because it's not without problems, but it is really funny. Yeah, I'm torn kind of between three and a half and four. Can you yeah. give a review that's undecided? You're not really giving people their money's worth, are you? I'm I'm gonna no. go I'm gonna go I'm gonna go four because okay. I get the problems, but when I look back, I haven't laughed as much at a movie in a long, yeah. long time. And I mean belly laughs. And I'm also I'm I'm recalibrating some of it in my head now as you're talking and I'm kinda of laughing again, you know. I actually feel like rewatching it. So that's a good sign, you know. So I'm going to give four to the unbearable weight of massive talent and Mark is giving it three and a half. Let's take a quick clip. All right. All right. I get it. You're making this up. 
What is this, like a, a little um, Stanislavski improv thing? Well, you can stop. Stanislavski, is he part of the resistance? Stop! I am your guest! Gabriella ripped the bedspread off me this morning. Now you're sending me on like a wild goose chase. I'm sorry, but you can't quit acting. You can't. That's none of your business. Whether you like it or not, you have a gift. And that gift brings light and joy to an increasingly dark and broken world. And to turn your back on that gift is to turn your back on the en entire human race. Human race? I'm afraid so. That is a clip of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which stars Nick Cage as a very fictional, or as a very accurate version, some would say, of himself. Mark Ryle gave it three and a half. I gave it four. It is in cinemas from this Friday and uh, pleasantly surprising. Mark, thank you for that. We're going to go back to open the shutters on the old house next week in Downton Abbey. I'm going to have to, yeah, I'm going to have to get my, uh, my suit pressed. <laughs> I thought yours was in a permanent state of pressedness, no? Well, I'm having it, I'm having it let out as we speak. <laughs> okay, thanks for that. Talk next week. Thanks, John. Up next, astronaut in waiting, Neve Shaw, on her favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to a person of note about their favourite movie. Neve Shaw is a science communicator, extraordinaire, writer and performer who has set herself the mission one day to make it into space. Her first book, Dream Big, An Irish Woman's Space Odyssey, was published by Mercer Press and details her long story, her long quest to make it into space someday. For the first time ever on this show, I can say we go live now to NASA, where Neve Shaw <laughs> spent the day. Hello, Neve. That's true. You can say that, John. It is very true. That's exactly how I spent my day. My brain is spinning. There were so many things I saw today. That's an amazing we will get, day. We will get to that in a second. Yeah. But first of all, your favorite movie, it's in a way quite fitting, but tell our listeners what it is. It's just, there's no, it's just like miles ahead of anything else. It's Blade Runner. It always has been since since I was about 12 years of age and it's never wavered. It's always been Blade Runner. Tell me why. I think there's a number of reasons. Firstly, we had a loan of a, of a VHS uh, video. Actually, no, it was a Betamax video oh, wow. recorder. I yeah, didn't think they own, even existed. existed. Yeah. Now, my uncle, he was on holidays and he left it with us for three weeks and we had never had videos before. And I think the second video I ever saw on it was Blade Runner. Right. And we watched it like we just had it for the whole weekend and we watched it. Every, we watched it again and again and again. And what I realized was when I watched it was the level of detail in that movie. It was really atmospheric. Um, I can remember that shot where, you know, it, it zooms down onto, um, you know, Brian's office and, it's it's um it's an office kind of in this open area and there's all this dust and rubbish on the ceiling like on the on the roof the outer roof of his building and then it goes through the building and then into his into his office and then the opening sequence where you have these flames and then you realize you're looking at a building and then you're looking at a window and you're looking at a fan and then you go in there and that's where the opening scene is with um with Leon and uh, and the guy I can't remember his name who you know he gets shot when he asks him the void comp test it's just I think I loved it because to this day, even when I see it, I, I, I get I get something new out of it. And I was always a massive Harrison Ford 
fan. Um, it's your classic kind of film noir uh, romance, and and yet it's also a science fiction movie. And then the closing sequence, you know, that that need to be seen to die. Uh, you know, Roy had to have. Um, he he couldn't die alone. Now, hang on, it was just more just for him. put put Sorry. put the cart before the horse there for a second. <laughs> we don't necessarily give people the end of the movie, but will you just you describe the opening scene very well? But just remind people roughly what the story of Blade Runner is, because there will be younger listeners who've I guess, never yeah. seen it. So Blade Runner is a story about uh, a guy that used to be a cop that now is kind of a sort of a private investigator, for want of a better word, in in a future which was actually. Um, 2018 August 24th 2018 if I remember rightly and um it starts with the police finding him because um there are genetically engineered people who have kind of become slaves uh, called blade runners or no 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 they're called replicants and um they uh, some of them um escaped from uh, a ship and they're on earth and mm. they need their best to find them. And so uh, Deckard, which is the character played by um, Harrison Ford, is uh, pulled in for one last job, which is mm-hmm. to find these four replicants. And that's really the premise of the story. And it's very, very good. Yeah. It yeah. certainly is. And, yeah. you know, there was a different version of it and, yeah. and all that director's kind of stuff. The directors could. Are Are you... Have you seen the kind of restored director's cut version of it? I have. I always liked it. So a lot of people complained that they didn't like the voiceover in the first bit. And the reason why they had a voiceover, which was very film noir, you know, they don't advertise for a Blade Runner in the Logan paper because that's what I was. Ex-Blade Runner, ex-cop, ex-murderer. I can quote it because I, I knew it off my heart. And the reason they did that was that people didn't understand the movie. It was so complex and uh, there were so many subtleties to it that they had to put a, a voiceover to it. So they never felt that it that it was the right feel for the movie. I personally feel it was perfect because I watched it when I was 12. And I think if they didn't have the voiceover, I don't think the movie would have stayed with me because I needed that explanation. You know, um, the director's cut is very good, but there's there's a lot. There's a lot going on, you know, and, and that explanation helped me a lot. The yeah. voiceover, you know. And of course, the now sadly departed Rudger Hauer, there is yeah. a famous there is a famous speech in it about yeah. it's just beautiful, actually. And and it's for beautiful. a sci-fi movie, we don't normally associate such beauty and yeah. poetry. Is that a scene that stays with you? Very much so. And he 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 came up with that. That wasn't in the script. He came up with that. You know, I've seen ships on fire off the shoulders of of Orion is how it starts. So all these moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Time to die is what happens. And so it's a pivotal scene. Um, and as I say, uh, he wants Deckard to bear witness to his death because the whole point of the replicants is, is that they they want to feel human. And they feel that they are human. So they, they're, they're obsessed with memories because they have a four year lifespan. So, that, so they're designed that they're going to die and expire after four years. So they, these four replicants are on a hunt to kind of find a sense of identity before they die. So it's, it's what I think is great about the movie is it's, it's also about us as humans, about like making the most of your life and, and living a life that feels fulfilled and being free and having choice and not being trapped and uh, and Deckard himself is trapped. You know, he has this identity as a Blade Runner, which he doesn't want to be, but he, he isn't good at anything else. And, you know, uh, his own ability to be a human is kind of 
not particularly good. And in a way, the, rec- the replicants are, are more alive and more emotional and, and devour life more than he does. So it, it, mm. it raises a lot of questions for me about our identity. But, but really, what I loved about it was him, uh, this, just the fact that this future was painted so, uh, in so much detail by Ridley Scott. And then, you know, there's all these stories that Ridley Scott and, and Harrison Ford you know, didn't get on. Harrison Ford hated being in that movie. He never did any promotion for it. He never talks about it. And um, I think it could, nobody else could have done that that part better than him, you know? Yeah. I Bono told me never to name drop, but I'll persevere. I interviewed <laughs> Ridley Scott last year, but it was for five minutes, I think. So we yeah. just, we didn't, I was dying to ask him about Blade Runner, but a nice lady came on and said, thank you, John. Can you rap now, please? So oh, uh, that sake. didn't happen. Tell me this last thing on Blade Runner. Uh, the mm. only other person who's chosen this in the three plus years I've been doing this show is Sean Moncrief as his favorite movie. So oh, you're in good okay. company. Well, what did, and I'm just reminding of Sean talking about it but what did you make of uh, Blade Runner 2049 or did you even go see it? Oh I did oh my god I did I really liked it I think mm. Villeneuve did a, did a beautiful job and it's a it's a movie uh, that stands alone the only part I didn't like were the scenes with Harrison Ford actually it felt okay it didn't feel right it didn't feel I don't I can't explain I mean I know that it was it was needed but but his style was at odds yeah. with the rest of the aesthetic I felt of the movie. I think, I, apart from that, I, I really, really liked it, though. I really liked the story. I really liked the idea, uh, you know, that there was this child that had been born from a replicant and, uh, you know, and the legacy of all that yeah. and, and and Ryan Gosling's own search for his own identity. I really, really, I think Villeneuve did a beautiful job and some of the imagery of that. And, you know, that, you know, that, that big hologram of the girl that comes out and when he's standing there and then the red of uh, when he, when, um, when Ryan Gosling's character goes out into the desert to find Eckward and he's in this kind of this red um, area. I thought it was stunning. I thought it was stunningly shot. Yeah, well, that's that's great. All of that. I mean, we've given a spoiler about the movie and then some, but you know what? It was worth it, Neve. So we won't yeah, worry it was, about. Well, it was made that. in 1986. You know, for yeah, God's sake. I mean, if you haven't seen it, like get a life, people. <laughs> right, that's what you're really yeah. saying. Well, thank you for that. So, listen, uh, I've known you a long, well, a reasonably long time. No, you, you have. Yeah. You've been trying. Early 2000s. Yeah, mid exactly. 2000s. It's yeah. just a, a lifetime. You know, it's yeah. like six careers in pop music. Yeah. So. But you have been on a quest, I suppose, to to travel to space. And yet this quest has taken you all sorts of places. You've done yeah. stage shows about it, everything. Too, too many things to, to mention nearly. But now you, you've kind of taken it a step further. I mean, you're not in space or anything, but you're you're in NASA. And, and science communication has become a massive part of your life. What, what are you doing in NASA at the moment? Well, um, I have developed a very close relationship now with ESA, our, our space station, the European Space, or our space agency, I mean, the European Space Agency. And so um, I really, really am so proud that we're members, that Ireland is a member of the European um, Space Agency and that there are lots of companies and research institutes and Irish people that work with the European Space Agency regularly. And so they have uh, an astronaut, our own astronaut, an Italian astronaut called Samantha Cristoforetti, and she is going up um, on her mission to the International Space Station um, in the next week or so. The date keeps getting changed. She's part of Crew 4, which is the fourth crew that's being launched from America, from the Kennedy Space Station, on board SpaceX uh, reusable rocket, the Falcon 9, and their own capsule called the Crew Dragon. 
So it's um, it's a very different type of launch to the one that I would have seen in, in Baikonur, which everybody did up until uh, NASA started re- relaunching from um, their launch pad 39A. So um, I'm here for that. But really interestingly, there's so much going on at NASA at the moment. I, I The whole day was taken up doing everything bar that because that that launch has had to be delayed because what's happening is, is that we have a full civilian crew of billionaires that went up about two weeks ago and they've been trying to get down there for the last few days. But due to weather, it's being delayed. So they so crew four can't go up until these guys come down. So they're due to come down at the weekend. So today I got to see... Um, I got to see the Vehicle Assembly Building, which is the iconic building on uh, NASA Kennedy uh, property. So anybody that visits Florida will see this huge building in the horizon. It's taller than the spire and it's much, much, much bigger than the spire, I'll tell you. the uh, All the rockets that were built to take us to the moon, um, so all the Saturn V rockets, which in itself is, is an iconic rocket, all the space shuttle uh, uh, spacecraft and now this new spacecraft, the space launch system, have all been built there and they get rolled out from there to the launch pad on this crawler. So I went in there, got a tour of the vehicle assembly building, which I've been dying to do for years. It was extraordinary. Then at lunchtime, oh, yeah, there's a launch happening. So just on the lawn, uh, SpaceX were launching uh, another uh, bunch of their satellites, Starlink satellites, to add to their constellation of 80,000 or something eventually. So that just happened on my lunch break. I did that live on Instagram. And then just to finish the day off, um, the, the space launch system has been out on launch pad 39B for the last couple of weeks trying to do this countdown rehearsal because it's the very first time this rocket has ever launched. And so they have to rehearse it within an inch of its life, which includes like counting down to just before launch. But they've they've had they've run into other issues that they've had to, uh, you know, um, deal with. So what they've done is they've they've paused this wet dress rehearsal and they're going to pull it back into the vehicle assembly building in the next few days. So we got an opportunity to drive out there. I was on the launch pad and I was taking pictures of this beautiful rocket, which I also saw roll out um, on St. Patrick's Day just just a few weeks ago. So uh, it's just oh, I'm just wow. like, yeah, my I head can, is spinning with I the can, amount of with the amount of photographs and videos I've taken. Today. I, I can hear it. A, a life less ordinary. <laughs> I was going to make it. A glib quote about I used to get the 39B from Blanchetown <laughs> to school every day, but that would be inappropriate. I wouldn't do that. So listen, I mean, does this mean then in the grand scheme of things, your mission to get into space is getting closer with each passing year? But it's a very interesting time, John, when you see that billionaires have paid to get to the International Space Station. What's what's happening is, is that the whole concept of who gets to go to space has radically changed in the last 18 months. You've seen the company Blue Origin, which is which, you know, is run by um, uh, Amazon's ex-CEO, Jeff Bezos. And then kind of having these public uh, flights, if you have the money, you can go up and come down again. It's quite a short flight, but you get to see, you know, the edge of Earth's atmosphere. You go about, um, I think, um, 100 kilometers up into the air and then you kind of free fall back down for a few minutes. So everything is starting to become accessible to the public. So I I have felt that I've never really had that steady determination of an astronaut. So I, I've, I've never felt that I, I would ever qualify for an astronaut. But I think because of, as you say, I've written plays and I've written books and everything, I have this ability to kind of describe things in a very human and everyday way. And so it's lent itself very well to me kind of going to um, these different places like Baikonur to see another European astronaut launch in 2018. And now, you know, to, to NASA to kind of report on the things that are happening there, particularly from a, a context of from the European Space Agency. So I hope that my work 
um, and and being respected as somebody that has something of value to share of the story of space that maybe one day uh, when they're not just sending astronauts to space, they might go, we should get a reporter up there. Who should we yeah. get to go? I want to be on that list. And so Sounds every like time, a plan. every time I do something, I hope it takes me one step closer to that. So that's yeah. the plan. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, it's okay. it's delightful to talk to you that far away and to hear your yeah. undiminished passion for science <laughs> and space yeah. and your desire to go into space. And of course, your favourite movie being Blade yes. Runner is very fitting. So yes. good night, good morning. Thank you, Neve. Thanks, John. Take care. Bye. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours a gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. The very famous closing monologue of Blade Runner, as spoken by Rutger Hauer. And that was the favourite movie of the inspirational Neve Shaw. And my thanks to Neve for taking a late night, early morning call from NASA, Cape Canaveral. Uh, I can't remember if it was morning or night. I can't figure it out at this stage. It's been a long week. That's it for this week. Next week, I'll be talking to Alan Leach, yes, of Denton Abbey fame, about the new Denton Abbey movie, which is coming next week. Just want to thank Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show this week, as she does every other week. And my sincere thanks to her. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on News Talk Radio. And you can get in touch with me at any stage during the week with TV and movie-related matters or anything indeed. I'm here. You can tweet me, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a safe week ahead, and I'll talk to you all next week.